Good morning. We are beginning a new journey this morning, one that will take us through the book of Second Peter. And as we begin this morning, I want to address something at the very beginning that sometimes is a point of confusion when we talk about the book of Second Peter. For instance, some people believe that it was written by someone other than Peter himself. So I want to take just a moment and talk about that for just a minute. And I want to tell you that I see absolutely no reason to believe that it was written by anybody other than Peter himself. But typically the people who believe that it was written by someone other than Peter, they chiefly make their argument over the fact that there are some noticeable differences in the style of how Second Peter is written as opposed to the book of First Peter. And I want to just call your attention to something that we covered last Sunday as we finished the book of First Peter. Remember that near the end of our scripture last week, Peter identified Sylvanus or Silas, and he let us know, the readers know, that he was writing the book of 1 Peter through Sylvanus or through Silas. So basically, Silas was acting as a scribe or as a secretary to Peter. So as we think about the book of 2 Peter, if he used a different scribe, if he used a different secretary, or if he didn't use one at all, obviously there would be differences in style. So I just want to say I, I find no reason to believe, as I study the Scriptures, that anybody other than Peter himself authored this book. And he did it somewhere in that same general time period as we saw First Peter in AD 60 to AD 67, with Second Peter being authored towards the end of that particular time period. There is indeed a theme as we look through the book of Second Peter, and it's this, that believers should continue faithfully in the truth as they await Christ's return. I want to say that one more time because I think we need to think about this daily in the day and time that we live in. Believers should continue faithfully in the truth as we await the return of Jesus Christ. As, as Adam said just a few minutes ago, we don't know when it is that Christ is going to come, but what we do know is that he is indeed coming back, and it might be today. It might not be today, but what is important is that we need to continue faithfully in what we know to be the truth as we await the return of Jesus Christ. I want to share one more thing with you as far as another slide before um, we look at the text this morning. I hope you can see some of this on the screen. I don't know how your mind typically works, but it helps me a lot when I look at a passage of Scripture just to know where we are where we are on a timeline as far as significant events that are happening around the same time that the scripture was written. It, you may remember last Sunday morning, I asked the question at one point in the sermon, in the text that we are right now, are we before the cross, are we at the cross, or are we after the cross? Because it's important oftentimes to know where a particular passage of Scripture or when it was written in relation to the crucifixion. So this timeline helps us answer that about the book of Second Peter. Notice it says in AD 31 on the left of your screen that Jesus is raised from the dead. 
Uh, also, there is a disclaimer at the bottom. You probably cannot see it on, on, on this particular slide, but it says all dates are approximate. And it's important to keep that in mind also. In AD 44, Herod Agrippa imprisons Peter. And then AD 49, we see the Jerusalem Council. And I, I wonder, do you know when you hear the phrase Jerusalem Council or the term Jerusalem Council, do you know why that's significant? And I'll just answer that question for you. One of the reasons that the Jerusalem Council was significant is because they declared as a result of the Jerusalem Council that Gentiles did not have to maintain Jewish laws and rituals and regulations in order to be a Christian. And that should be significant to each of us this morning because if you're hearing my voice this morning and you are not 100% Jewish, then you would have likely fallen into the Gentile category. Can you imagine having to keep all of those laws and rituals in order to be saved? And there's one other thing I want to address quickly before we get to our scripture this morning. A lot of times people think of biblical timelines as either being B.C., and we know that B.C. stands for before Christ, right? However, on the other end of that timeline, we've got the abbreviation A.D., and many people incorrectly assume that since B.C. means before Christ, that A.D. must mean after the death of Christ. Hear me when I say this one. That is not at all what it means. That is not what it means. A.D. is actually translated from the Latin, and it means in the year of our Lord. In the year of our Lord. It does not necessarily mean after the death of Christ. And I want you to think about it this way. If, if we're looking at that timeline, and on one side is before Christ, and if the A.D. stood for after the death of Christ, which it does not stand for that, but stay with me for just a moment. If it did, where would we actually put the 33 years that Jesus was on the earth? Where would that fit? And the answer is it wouldn't. It wouldn't fit. So hear me when I say this morning, don't let the term A.D. be a point of confusion for you. It does not mean after the death of Christ. Instead, it means in the year of our Lord. And just in case you're interested for historical references, most Bible scholars believe that the birth of Christ happened somewhere in the period 6 B.C. to 4 B.C., somewhere in that particular time frame. So again, we're in Second Peter chapter 1 this morning, and as I almost always do, I want to ask you right now, if you are physically able to stand, would you stand with us as our way of honoring the reading of God's Word? Second Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. God's Word says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." 
For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you so much for the reading of your word. Father, now I ask that you simply hide me behind your cross. Lord, I pray that you will anoint me from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. Lord, I pray that if there are any people that are hearing my voice right now that are lost, that do not know you as their Lord and Savior, Father, I pray that you will open their ears to hear, their minds to understand, and their hearts to receive. Father, may this be the day that you do the exceedingly abundantly more than our minds can even think to ask or imagine. Father, I pray that this will be the day that we will see salvation in this place. Lord, I pray that it will be a day that you will set the captives free. And Lord, I pray that it will be the day that you will just maintain unity in this place. Father, may Jesus be forever glorified in this place. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the title of our message this morning is Precious Promises. You may have picked up from verse 4 when we read that earlier. It says, He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of this divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So we're going to be taking a look at these promises that are identified as precious this morning. So as we begin, as you would expect from a letter, he starts with a greeting, and we see that in verses 1 and 2. Now, you'll probably remember um, back in, in uh, 1 Peter, at the beginning in the greeting, Peter was identified as Peter there, Right? And so this, from the very beginning, this is one of the reasons that people pick up on a difference of style between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is identified as Simon Peter. Now, I honestly don't find this as being odd because if you, if you read throughout the Bible about the life of Peter, we know that Simon was indeed his name when? before Jesus gave him another name, right? And so he heard the call of Jesus to come follow me, and so Jesus gave him a different name. That name was Peter. That Peter translates as man of rock. And when we think of what we know about Peter throughout the Scriptures, I think that does a really good job of describing Peter. And I want to just point out to you that Jesus gave Peter that name Early on in the relationship, not, not after that Peter had proved himself. 
So, again, this Peter uh, translates as being a man of rock. We know that he was bold, don't we? Peter was bold for his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the things that Peter does here at the beginning, he identifies himself as a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I wonder if someone was writing a letter about us, would they identify us as a servant? I hope so. I sure hope that if someone was writing a letter about me, that they would include near the beginning that that he was a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, the group that, that Peter is writing this letter to, we don't know their exact geographical location. We really don't even know who they are for sure. But what we do know... We, we know a couple of things from these two verses that are on the screen to them. Uh, one of the things that we know is their faith was under attack. So Peter was writing this letter to encourage them. In verse 2 there, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I'm sure they needed for that to happen. You know, if your faith has ever been under attack, you need people praying for grace and peace to be multiplied to you, don't you? And yes, the answer is yes. Now, the other thing that we know about this group of people that Peter is writing to from these first two verses, we know that they're believers. Now, how do we know that? We know that because Peter identifies them as to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with theirs by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He wouldn't have written that phrase if he had been writing to or about unbelievers. So we know that they were actually believers in Jesus Christ. And I hope this morning, as we just look at those two verses, I hope that you are encouraged. Because I want to tell you, on the days that you may be experiencing a struggle, there is likely somebody praying for you, specifically for you that you don't even know about. And I pray that it's this body of Christ right here. I pray that that's who it is. So as we look at the rest of our verses this morning, we're going to begin to see some characteristics that should be on display in the life of Christians. We're going to see this in verses 3 through 11. Now, I'm sure you have heard me say before that I firmly believe that every Christian is called to do something. Every Christian is called to do something. Now, my calling may look different from yours. It likely does. Your calling might look different from mine. But we are called to do something as Christians. And I can guarantee you that something that we are called to do will be something that will honor Jesus Christ. We see in these verses that are on the screen now, we can, we can read from this that the one who calls us enables us to grow spiritually. And that's the expectation. We never reach the point in our Christian walk where we have arrived, where we have learned everything, where we know everything that there is to know. Instead, the expectation is that we continually keep learning. We continually keep growing until that day that Christ calls us home. We're never supposed to stop growing spiritually. 
And maybe this morning you hear me say that and you're thinking, do I have that desire? Do I have that desire? Well, if you're thinking that this morning, I want to just ask you a question. How much time are you spending in prayer? How much time are you spending reading God's Word? I heard someone say this week in another sermon that I was listening to, they were talking about prayer and the importance of prayer, and they asked a question that, that caught my attention. And that question was, are the prayers you're praying, are they inward-focused? Are they, Lord, please take care of this for me. Please protect my family. Those type of prayers. Now, don't get me wrong. There is nothing at all wrong with praying that the Lord provides for your family. There's nothing wrong with praying for the, the needs of your family. There's nothing wrong with that. But our prayer life should not stop there. So are, are, are our prayers inwardly focused or are they kingdom focused? And then he asked a question, and I'm going to ask it to you this morning. If right this very second, God answered every prayer the way you wanted him to, that you prayed over the last six months, how many people would have just been added to the kingdom of Jesus Christ? It's convicting, isn't it? You see, we're not supposed to just pray a blanket prayer, save the lost. We're supposed to be praying for lost people by name on an ongoing basis. So if God were to answer every prayer that we have prayed over the last six months in the way that we wanted them to ask, answer it, how many people would have just been added to the kingdom of Jesus Christ? May that drive us to our knees. May we be burdened for the lost. May true revival start. May it start in this place. May it start in me. May it start in you. Now, he wants us to become partakers of the divine nature because as Christians, it says we may... Um, have, we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, does this mean that we will never be tempted to sin? Unfortunately, it does not mean that. We are living in a world that's absolutely infested by sin, but we should never be a willful participant in sin. We should never willingly participate in sin. Now, through verses 5 through 7, we get to see a closer look at what this divine nature looks like. So, we see here that he says to make every effort. So, I want to point out to you, there is, there is indeed some effort that is required on our part. And I just want to say that at the beginning as we look at these verses. And I want to just explain my basis for that. Because perhaps you're thinking right now something like, I thought Jesus did everything on the cross. Why should I have to do anything? Why should I have to do anything? So I want, I want to make sure that you hear me say this morning, in no way, in no shape, in no form am I preaching a works-based salvation. That is not 
what I am preaching this morning. So please don't hear me say that. And what I mean by a works-based salvation, there are people throughout our, even our country today, probably throughout our county today, that believe that you come to Christ, you get saved, but in order to be really saved, you have to do this, 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 and this. And it promotes this concept of like, on the day that you die, basically you have to do more good than you've done bad, plus you've got to know Jesus. That's not the way salvation works. But hear me when I say this. Effort is required on our part. We've got to be willing to give ourselves to Jesus and let him change whatever he wants to change, which is, by the way, he wants to change us all completely. He wants to save us all. And let me tell you, those works will occur, but they will happen out of the overflow of the transformation that Christ has done in your heart. So you will do works. But those works are not required in order for you to be saved. Now, if you you have questions about that, I would love to talk more about that with you at a later time. Let me know if you would like to talk about that deeper. But we see here we're to make every effort to do some things. One of the things that we have to do, we're expected to study this book, aren't we? We're expected to study this book. Book. We are supposed to immerse ourselves in this book. It is such a privilege and an honor to be able to hold this book in our hands and to have the opportunity to read it. Don't take that for granted. Don't take that for granted. Absorb as much Scripture as you possibly can. But now, in, the, in, 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 in case, I've lost the word I was looking for, in case that you're still wondering... And I'm just not sure I should have to do anything. I want, I want to be sure that you see here that he references self-control. Self-control. We are required to do some things. Or it wouldn't be called self-control. It would not be called self-control. Actually, some effort is required on our part to truly love like Christ asks us to love, right? Some effort is required on our part. We've got to be willing to be humble. We have got to be willing to walk in humility. We have got to be willing to control our sinful desires. We've got to be willing to exercise self-control over anything in our life that does not honor Christ. We are to, to display godliness. Would people say that we do that? Do our daily actions, if they were being observed by a stranger, do our daily actions reflect Jesus Christ? And then let's look. This mentions brotherly affection. We're expected to love each other. That's just the way it is. We are expected to love each other. Everyone, not just the people that are the closest to us, we are supposed to love everybody. Now, these, these qualities are expected, and they are expected to keep increasing over the course of your life. And, and we see what the result of that is here in verse 8. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It really is as simple 
as verse 9 puts it, if you don't do this, you are spiritually sick. You are spiritually sick. Verse 9 says that whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It's pretty tough, isn't it? But that's what God's Word says. Now, when I was growing up several years ago, I don't remember exactly what year that it was, but there was a phrase that people said all the time. It seems like there was some type of country song even about it. But it said something like this, The devil made me what? Do it. Y'all remember that? The devil made me do it. Can I tell you something? I don't agree with that. Not one bit. Now, I think the devil can entice you to do something. I don't think the devil can make you do something. I think we can make the choice that we're going to rise above whatever our enemy, the devil, is trying to get us to do. Now, don't get me wrong. Satan is definitely powerful. But let's not willingly give him more credit than he actually has. As I said, I think it was last Sunday, we know how this ends for the Christian. We know that Christ wins. We know that Christ is stronger than the enemy. Let's not give the enemy more credit than he needs. God is greater. Christ is greater. Let's live like that. Because, you know, if we don't, if we don't remember, if we are so nearsighted, as verse 9 says, that we are blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins, how would we remember that we've received that amazing grace from God? How would we extend that amazing grace from others? Now, it's important to know always what's going on in the text. And I don't know if you remember the sermon from the first Peter sermon series where there were two words that were mentioned, and I stopped and talked about those two words, and it was these were the two words, fiery trials. And I remember I stopped that day and asked the question, do you ever stop to wonder when the original readers of the letter saw those two words, what did they think? And then I went on to explain that at the time that First Peter and actually also Second Peter was written, believers were being burned at the stake. Christians were literally being dipped in tar and set on fire, and they were used as human torches to light the gardens of Nero. Now, that gives a different meaning or understanding to fiery trials, doesn't it? It really does. And it also makes some of the stuff we go through not look nearly as bad. At least we haven't been lit on fire yet and used as a human torch. But it's equally important to know what's going on in our Scripture today. The people that Peter was writing to, they had been under the teaching of some false teachers. And that's always dangerous. False teachers are always dangerous. They always have been. They always will be. And as a result of what these false teachers had been doing there, Some of these people were beginning to doubt their faith in Jesus Christ. 
Hear me when I say this morning, false teachers always have been. They always will be dangerous. Do not entertain a false teacher. They are being used by Satan whether or not they realize that they are. And let me tell you, this is how you combat false teaching. Observe this word. Observe this book. Read it. Study it. And then read it and study it some more. Then you will know what is true and what is not true. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Again, do not take the ability to hold this book in your hand and read it as that's something that I can do later. No, it might not be. It's important to study it now. And when you hear somebody say, well, I think this about that, make sure that it, that it is in line with the Word of God. If there's not, there is a problem, and it's your job as a Christian to know what God's Word says. Remember, you have the opportunity to study God's Word. Do not take that for granted. Now, back in verse 2, Peter tried his very best to go above and beyond to reassure these people that their faith was real. But let me, I want you to hear me say this. At this point in our text today, where we are on the screen right now in our text, doubt was very real within the lives of some of these readers. So when Peter says to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, he's asking them to look for signs of transformation that have occurred within your heart, within your life. I will tell you that if Christ has transformed your heart, those signs will be there. Those signs will be there. You will know what your life was like prior to your salvation. You know what it's like now. There should be a difference. And if you are not seeing a difference, something is wrong. The change should be obvious. Now, when he says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall I want to be sure that you understand that does not mean that if you follow Jesus that you'll never have a problem. That's not what it means. Unfortunately, it's not. it also doesn't mean that when you make the decision to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior that you'll never commit any sin again. Again, we live in a world that is infested by sin. But what it does mean is that if we are truly following Christ, then we can be assured of our salvation. We're not going to lose it, church. We will not, if we are truly saved, we will not lose our salvation. But it is important to know whether we've had it, whether we have it or not. It is important to know whether you have it, if you've ever had it or not. Remember, we've been talking about precious promises this morning. And I want to ask you some questions as we close. Is there faith present in your life? Has your faith been supplemented with virtue? And virtue with knowledge? And knowledge with self-control? And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. Are those qualities on display in your life this morning? If not, 
I want to ask you again, how much time are you spending in God's Word? How much time are you spending in intentional prayer? How much are you praying inwardly versus kingdom prayers? I want to remind you that the great awakenings, the great revivals we read about, even the great revivals that we see today, they all start by God's people seriously praying. Not a one-hour prayer meeting, but over and over and over again. They come together. They pray together. They pray in their homes. They ask God over and over and over to send revival. I think He can do the same thing again. I know He can do the same thing again. But we're going to have to ask Him for it. We're going to have to seriously pray and ask Him for it. It can start this morning. It can start this morning during the invitation. Perhaps we just need to come forward and pray for revival. Perhaps we need to do that. I think it would be a wonderful idea for us to do that. We need revival. Our country needs revival. Our world needs revival. Hear me when I say Jesus is the answer for the world today. He always has been. He always will be. And it's just simply that. Jesus is the answer. He can supply what we need. And we need our country, our world needs revival. Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let me tell you, no matter what you think your greatest need is, that is it. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that is your greatest need. Whether or not you realize it, you can know Him today. I would love to introduce you to Him. There are others here that would love to introduce you to Jesus. I encourage you, I compel you to come forward. Maybe there are others of you that are carrying a burden and you just need to kneel at the foot of the cross and lay that burden down. Can I tell you this morning, it truly is just like that old song states, burdens are lifted at Calvary. Jesus is very near Jesus is very near. I wonder this morning, can you reach out and touch Him? And the answer to that should be yes. He's here this morning. I wonder this morning, do you know Him? I wonder, do you have a need? If so, I encourage you to come forward during this invitation. Let's let's give it to the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank You so much for the reading of Your Word. Lord, I pray now that during this time of invitation that you will just simply do immeasurably more than our minds can even think or imagine. Lord, may you save the lost. May you save the lost. May you break the chains of bondage. Lord, may you set the captives free. May revival start in this place. And may it start with me. Lord, I pray that you will be glorified always in this place. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.